This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Secretly abducted at midnight from his home in Afghanistan, our guest today, Mazam Beg, was held incommunicado in Kandahar and Bagram Air Force Base and eventually flown to Guantanamo, where, like more than 800 Muslim men and boys, 550 of whom remain in custody, he was held in shackles and subjected to relentless interrogations and abusive and degrading conditions. Beg spent three years in U.S. custody, nearly two of them in Guantanamo, before being released without charge in January of 2005. His new book, Enemy Combatant, written with UK journalist Victoria Britton, is the narrative of his detention, including his 18 months of solitary confinement. Mozambeg, welcome to Weekly Signals. Uh, thank you. Uh, how thank are you today? Thanks for being on. Uh, you're most welcome. Uh, now, are we talking to you uh, in London? Uh, I'm in Birmingham, which is about, a, um, uh, about an hour or so away from London. Uh-huh. W- were you born in Birmingham? or? That's right. I was born and raised in, in this city, yes. Uh, and can you tell us, uh, give us a little background here. You you were born there, but then you went to uh, Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan. What, what, why was that? What prompted you to leave the country? Um, I had begun a project in 2000 to build uh, wells and schools in Afghanistan, uh, which is what I was doing in 2001 when I was there with my wife and children uh, working on these projects. Uh, mm-hmm. When the bombings began, uh, we have all evacuated to Pakistan where we have family members and it was from there that I was abducted on uh, the night of the 31st of January 2002. Now, now, did they explain anything to you when you were abducted? Was there any, you know, reason given? Well, let me ask, who abducted yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, officially, uh, nobody, because it, nobody, everybody sort of denied how I was taken into custody. But, of course, um, on the night in question, there was a knock on the door. I opened the door to, to be faced by civilian uh, Pakistanis uh, who shackled my, the backs of my hands and, and my legs and put a hood over my head and carried me into the back of the vehicle. Uh, I subsequently saw Americans, uh, which is obvious from, the, from how they looked as, as uh, Caucasians and from their accents, and they told me that, uh, that I was going to be sent uh, to Guantanamo at some point. But they didn't even ask my identification at that point. Um, they didn't even search me. They just simply physically picked me up into this vehicle and took me away. So uh, it, it was a classic uh, kidnap and abduction and false imprisonment. And, and at that point in time, they said, you're going to Guantanamo. Uh, well, they alluded to it. They said, you can either ask our que- answer our questions here, or you can do them in Guantanamo, which, of course, was supposed to put the frighteners up me. But... Um, uh, you know, what they said, in fact, uh, transpired. It was, it was a, a, an advertent truth. I'm, I'm going to go back to Nathan's question, which was, what was, the ra- what was the reason that they said they picked you up? At that point, they didn't say, they didn't say anything uh, other than, oh, yes, one of them uh, produced a pair of handcuffs. It, it one of these American, um, the Americans who were dressed as, as a Pakistani produced a pair of handcuffs. And he said that I was given these handcuffs by one of the wives of the September 11th victims to catch the culprit, and then he proceeded to put them on the cuffs that I'd already had, um, so it was for him a peace of mind. And I, I couldn't believe that he actually believed that what he was doing was, was catching uh, somebody who was responsible for September 11th. 
but that seems to be the premise in his mind. Yeah. Uh, as it transpired and time went on, I learned subsequently some of those things, what they felt was the justification for taking me into custody, but not at that point. Uh, oh, and uh, even at that time, uh, Guantanamo was already set. They set that up almost immediately after 9-11, isn't that right? So you, uh, every, was, yeah, a few was, months afterwards when they invaded Afghanistan, um, I yeah. saw the pictures, I certainly saw the pictures in Pakistan on the TV yeah. uh, of Camp Delta uh, and those pictures that have been beamed all around the world. So that, I was the, were those the ones that were basically cages, right? They were just the chain-link cages? Is that the yes, ones? Yes. Uh, in, fact, well, in fact, it's actually Camp X-ray, what they showed, those, those cages and the detainees in orange suits being seated right. uh, and with the masks over their faces. So, so what, just walk us through a little bit of this sort of this, this process, this torturous journey that you took. So you're abducted, you're put in handcuffs, and you're on your way to what you think might be Guantanamo, but really you ended up in another place before you ended up in was, Guantanamo. Was, Kandahar first? Kandahar, Bagua. Well, yes, first I was in Pakistani custody, and the Pakistanis treated me very well. They were quite apologetic. They didn't seem, didn't hurt me in any way at all, and, and they, feel, they felt uh, um, ashamed of handing me to, to the Americans. And I thought that, that perhaps because Pakistan is a third-world country, I'm going to get treated very badly there. But it was the opposite. As soon as I was in U.S. custody, that's when the harsh treatment began. And it was um, when I was taken to Kandahar, it included being stripped naked with several soldiers sitting on top of me, uh, sliding my clothes off, clothes off with a knife, which I could feel the steel against my skin. I could hear the sounds of other detainees screaming while they're being searched physically in the cavities of, of, of all their body parts. Mm. Um, dogs were barking, the guards were spitting at us, taking photographs, shouting, shaving us, um, and then taking us shackled and dragging us into interrogation rooms naked uh, to be questioned. So that was my introduction to U.S. custody. Well, we're speaking with Bagram, I'm sorry, Bozam Beg. And the book is Enemy Combatant and uh, My Imprisonment in Guantanamo, Bagram, and Kandahar. And um, so you essentially, I, it's, it sounds, this is going to sound a little crude, but it sounds like what, what uh, um, the U.S. Uh, Army does to any new recruits, which is they try to dehumanize them as quickly as possible. And isn't that part of what was happening to you? They were, in, their intent was to strip you of your own identity and to begin to impose some kind of uh, their own will on you. Isn't that a lot of what was going on? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the guards even said as much. I mean, I don't think they do it as bad as, as, as this to one another. Oh, no, no, no. But, but certainly I think that the, it, was, it was part of that same process. If anybody could do it, it had to be the military. Uh, and, of course, the, after the, the usage of, of names was removed and everybody assigned a number, and they had to record, uh, memorize that number, whether they spoke English or not was, was irrelevant. Um, so th that was certainly part of the process, as you said, the dehumanization process uh, was very necessary in order that the guards and the interrogators could carry out their job in what they felt was an efficient manner. Now, were you brought in with a group of other prisoners? You said you were being held down and you could hear screams of others there? Yes, I was brought in uh, with a group of other prisoners who I never saw because I was always hooded uh, uh -huh. at every time when I was close or in any close proximity to other uh, prisoners. So I only heard their voices, but I never did actually see them until they took the hood off my head uh -huh. for a very short time when they shaved my, uh, my, my head off. Did you have, uh, did you have any uh, communication with them at all, the other prisoners? Uh, at various times during my incarceration of three years, yes, I oh, did. Yeah. Um, there were places where we, we were not allowed to speak, where speaking to another detainee would get you in a punishment, which includes having the hands tied above the top of a cage and, put, uh, and uh, left there with a hood over your head, 
And other times I was allowed to speak to detainees, and sometimes when the guards weren't watching, I used to whisper to them and, and things like that. So it, it varied from place to place. Well, so can you say that again? What was the one of the punishments that you that were imposed on? You um, the punishments included, uh, I mean, they varied again, but in Bagram, where I was sent to several weeks later, it included having your hands tied above your head to the top of the, the cage ceiling uh, with shackles and having a hood placed above your head so that you were left there um, with your hands stretched out. Uh, and in this way, you were left sometimes for hours on end, sometimes uh, more harsh treatment that was ordered by interrogations for to break the will of a detainee. They were left there for days on end in this manner. We had uh, a few uh, months ago. We had a uh, a woman on Jennifer Harberry, and she was uh, she, her husband was tortured in uh, Central America, and they she described something called the Vietnam position, which was to essentially have someone. We've seen we've all seen the picture of uh, from Abu Ghraib of the hooded man standing there with the the wires coming out of his hands. It looks like, but just standing there, and uh, they they uh, apparently U.S. Uh, military. Uh, interrogators have found this to be one of the most effective things that you can do, which is to essentially just make you stand for a long period of time. And that sounds like what was happening to you in, uh, in, uh, in Bangkok. Yeah, indeed, uh, in, in Bagram, I, I saw um, one person actually get beaten in this manner. He was held with his hands above his head for such a long time that his body went limp and he was asking for help and so forth. Eventually they came in, and rather than, than taking him to for medical administration, they started beating him and dragged his body off and... I later, it was later confirmed to me that this person was actually killed uh, shortly afterwards. What was there any reason that that was brought on? Was he was he uh, struggling with the, the the guards or was he? Uh, no, I, I mean his story actually has been quite detailed in the New York Times, and, and there have been prosecutions in the United States about it, but nobody's really received any sentence. Um, this man was, as I said, held in my cell and taken away for interrogation, and they administered what they call peroneal strikes later, which are strikes to the top of the, uh, the thigh area, and that caused a blood clot, which end, ended up causing his death. Um, the reasons why they did that for are uh, because um, the statements made by the soldiers are that they, they interpreted that that was allowable in the standard operating procedures that they had, and uh, so they felt that uh, they were acting within the rules to, to use this process. I guess what I was asking about earlier, and this is one of, I think this is an important point that needs to be made, which is the idea of, uh, you, you know, electrodes being hooked up to you and the sort of this standard issue Hollywood style, you know, torture doesn't take place like we think, it, when we think of torture nowadays, is it can be as simple as having someone stand for such a long period of time that their body begins to break down, which doesn't sound like torture, but in fact the physical and mental um, uh, effect that it has on somebody is often devastating. And, and it sounds like this is some of the things that you either experienced or you saw. Yes, indeed. I think there's, there's, there's a, a memo that was passed by Donald Rumsfeld in which he said that um, why is it that there's a problem for these guys to stand for so many hours? I stand for eight hours a day. <laughs> and that's sort of his raison d'etre and to, to say that this, this, uh, um, this thing was okay. Uh, and that's how it was interpreted on the ground. Uh, we're speaking with... Um, Mozam Beg, and he is the author of a book, Enemy Combatant, My Imprisonment at Guantanamo, Bagram, and Kandahar. And how long were you in Bagram? Uh, I was held in Bagram for almost uh, a year, for 11 months. Um, so Bagram was, was, wow. was, was a difficult uh, place to be in because there was no natural light. It was a, a disused, uh, ironically, Russian 
uh, um, factory that had been uh, used now as a detention center. And um, the, during the time that I was there, I faced some of the harshest um, interrogation techniques that I think uh, were employed on me, which included being hog-tied and left on the ground like that with a hood over my head uh, and, and uh, threatened with further torture with them saying that they were going to, they were going to send me to Egypt. They used the sounds of a woman screaming next door for me to, uh, which I was led to believe was my wife being tortured, yeah. um, because uh, they wanted to get information out of me that really didn't exist. I was just going to, that was my next question. Uh, really, at what point are you, you're hearing these questions, they're asking you things, you're, I assume, asking you about things that you, you don't have any knowledge of. Is, is the impulse, well, first of all, was there anything that you could provide them? Did you, is, was there any questions to their answers that seemed any answers to their questions that you seemed to satisfy them in some way, or was, did it ever... Well, well there, were, there were questions, of course, that I could answer them, you know, about my own personal knowledge of, of myself and my family and my friends and so forth, about my movements and those sorts of things, which were, you know, very general. But even more general than that, they asked me to, to start to, con to confess. And I said, to what? What is it that you want me to confess to? And they said, well, you know the answer to that. And, of course, uh, I didn't know what the answer to that, and nobody knew the answer to that, because they were, I think it was a method that they didn't just use with me. They used it with, with yeah. scores and hundreds of people, which was the same thing. Let's uh, torture this person into saying what we think he may have. And if he hasn't got anything, then it doesn't matter. And if, we have, if he has got something, then we've got the information out of him. I think they were, the, the alphabet agencies like the FBI and the CIA were also vying with one another in, in trying to procure knowledge. Uh, that they glean from detainees so they could go back and tell the um, people in power that look, this isn't what we've extracted from these people. Right. Um, but I never ever did know what it was specifically that I was supposed to have done. Uh, and um, of course, I explain a lot of that in my book. Yeah, um, let's go ahead. Yeah, Mike. I'm going to mention it again. Uh, Mozambique is the uh, the author, our guest today. We're talking to him about his new book, Enemy Combatant: My Imprisonment at Guantanamo. Bagram and Kandahar. Uh, do you think that the prisoners, uh, um, the prisoners, the soldiers who tortured you, do you think they should be punished? Should they be prosecuted? Well, you know, I think several of them were prosecuted for, for, uh, for some of the deaths that I saw. But in my own particular case, I, I, I need to be sort of just in this sense. Is that for the, amount, for the same number of detainees, the soldiers that I came across who were bad, there was an equal number, if not more, who were good, decent people. And that's the impression. The impression that I take away from Guantanamo and Bagram isn't that they were all bad and they all need to be punished. Um, there were several good, decent soldiers who I would consider, even to this day, to be my friends. Um, I think that's important to, to get that part clear. Yeah. However, the ones who were involved in, in, in things like the, the torture of somebody who got killed, um, I've read recently, and in fact, greatly, very ironically, I was asked to be a character witness for a soldier who was not only involved in some of those abuses in Bagram, but later also went on to Abu Ghraib and was involved in the abuse of female detainees, of female detainees in, in Abu Ghraib. And I was asked to be his character witness by his uh, defense uh, attorneys. Mm -hmm. I, I, want, I want to go back, cause, and I, I'm, it's, good, it's encouraging to hear that there were, there were people that even in this uh, terrible situation were at least decent and... Uh, but did you ever, were there, I know there must have been an impulse on your part, and I'm sure many other prisoners, to confess to something in order to... Indeed. Yeah, well, I mean, indeed. Uh, did um, you, one of the greatest confessions that ever come out of Bagram, or, or, uh, or, or that come out in the war on terror, actually began in Bagram. There was a man called Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi, 
which I, who I'm sure you must have heard of, mm-hmm. was in Bagram two weeks before I was, and the same people who interrogated him were interrogating me, and they threatened to send me to the very same place, which was in Egypt. Now, this man was uh, said to be the, the most senior-ranking member of Al-Qaeda, who was at that time in custody, and he was tortured into saying that, the, that uh, Al-Qaeda was trying to uh, obtain weapons of mass destruction from Saddam Hussein, um, which, of course, sounds to be a lie and to set under, set under duress. But it was used as a justification to enter Iraq by Colin Powell when he made that statement. Yeah. Um, so, yes, people did say things. Uh, and I think the great frightening thing is that they, they could use those, that as actionable information to, to kill and to capture other people. I, I mean, it's, it's historic. Uh, it's, it's almost a given that uh, information gathered under duress is m- mostly unreliable. It is not. This is not new to the American experience. It's just. It's just a, a fact of human experience that people will say what they want. They think you want to hear in order to to uh, to end the the pain that they're under. So uh, uh, I think so. I think. But I think also, you know, you've got you've got bodies like Hollywood who actually glorified. If you think of some of the, um, I don't know, Dirty Harry, for example, you know, he goes up to the bad guy, points a gun at him, he twists the rules, bends the rules sometimes, yeah, and yeah. you can actually you can actually uh, sympathize with him. So uh, th- there is this idea that it's quite that yeah. looks at it as in a noble way, in, in a sense, because it's you know, quote unquote, saving lives. Right. right. Now, now, you acted as a, a translator there. Am I correct? Uh, I couldn't say that that was my job, but I did uh-huh. translate for detainees who couldn't speak English and only spoke, spoke Arabic or Urdu, which I which I do I speak both of. Were you ever uh, a, a translator at any of the interrogations? No, 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 okay, no, yeah. no, did you, not, no. Did, only, only with medical staff, uh, um, and that was it. Because did you did you feel that uh, the the translators there were doing a good job? Um, well, the, the problem with the translators was that some of them were local, uh, and um, so they only spoke sort of local languages. But there were several detainees from different parts of the world. There were Chechens there, and Chinese, and there were yeah. Uzbeks and Turks. So it all depended. Um, the American expert translators, as they were called, but you know, um, to be honest, many of them couldn't communicate very well with the detainees at all, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they'd, um, they, they were the sort of linguistic experts. I think on the ground, a lot of these guys were only been, had only been studying their various languages for, for a few months. So a lot of frustration set in, in, in with a lot of detainees and guards because they couldn't communicate with one another. And I didn't have that experience because I could communicate with them very easily. I, I want to move on to sort of let's move beyond the sort of uh, the micro into the macro here. We're speaking with Mozambique, and the book is Enemy Combatant, My Imprisonment at Guantanamo, Bagram and Kandahar. Um, we just, at, at the, during the uh, news portion, we talked about, I believe there's still 550 detainees at Guantanamo, although there are plans apparently to begin moving them all out. Um, but that's still a lot of people, and a lot of them are, have not been charged. In fact, there are very few actual prosecutions that have come out of the imprisonment uh, at Guantanamo, or anywhere for that matter. Very few. I think that's an important point that needs to be made. We are uh, three and a half years down the road, or four years down the road from Guantanamo, and really virtually no prosecutions. But you uh, spoke uh, earlier about the uh, the desire on the part of the Bush administration to essentially continue to uh, prevent uh, prisoners from habeas corpus. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Actually, you know, there have been two Supreme Court decisions passed on, in the favor of detainees in Guantanamo Bay, but in practical, tangible terms, this meant nothing. In Russell versus Bush, first of all, um, 
in 2004, it was said that the detainees had the right to behavior corpus. They could either be uh, shown what the crimes were with which that they charged, or and made taken to a court, or that they released. Now, nothing's ever transpired from that, and nothing's ever transpired from the later Hamden decision, which was said that President Bush had acted illegally in ordering these military commissions, which had been regarded by British law lords as a kangaroo court. Um, so there's, there's this playing with the reality of wanting not to give these people um, uh, basic human rights and basic rights that anybody, that even the most worst convicted uh, criminals on earth get, get the access to. Uh, and, of course, the other discrimination here with Guantanamo is that no Americans, even if they've been captured in the war on terror, are ever taken to Guantanamo. Oh, is that right? I didn't even know that. Okay. So we're not going to see uh, Walker. What was his name? Um, John, uh, John, John Walker Lynn. John, John Walker Lynn there. Um, no, no. Um, so I, let, let's let's back up just a second for the legally impaired here. Habeas corpus essentially is you get to hear the charges that are being brought against you, so that you have some idea of how to defend yourself. Is that is that the? Am I? Yeah, that's right. I mean, habeas corpus, the doctrine, uh, originates from this country at the time of you know King John when he was uh, yeah. fighting the barons and things like that. So it, it's entrenched in, in British and, and and American law, and yet it's a very basic right that's been denied. Um, because people there have been labeled to be enemy combatants, a new term, uh, who do not deserve the rights of, of being treated like human beings. It, it, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. And, and so, you know, if you look in Guantanamo, even the iguana is a protected species. It, it, if it's damaged, an offending soldier can expect to pay up to $10,000, not so with a detainee. Yeah. In fact, three detainees have, have died in Guantanamo Bay. It's been, we've been told that they're suicides, but there's been no independent inquest. Uh, strangely, President Bush had said after those deaths that he'd like to see Guantanamo closed. But during that, as he was speaking, two permanent facilities were being built and completed as he spoke, which the rest of the world probably didn't know. And, of course, now you've got this new batch of people that have turned up there, and that's where they're going to be housed. And, and, and again, I mean, this is a bedrock principle of law around the world, is to at least be able to face your accuser and know what your charges are and... And we're currently seeing the administration try to undermine that. They will not allow you to speak to counsel without someone from from the uh, from the base present. Is that am I correct in, on that? Uh, generally, that that seems to be the principle. They do they do it with, with uh, what they regard as as less uh, um, security risks. They let people let the sort of the, um, the the attorneys go in without guards. They did in my case. Um, but what they're trying to do now, the government is trying to argue a position uh, that they want to pass some, uh, something in Congress to say that even these habeas petitions we cannot allow uh, to, to take place. So therefore we're going to uh, annul them, which is going to mean that the lawyers can't even go there, which means again it's going to become a closed place in the way that it used to be before. And whatever information has been coming out from the lawyers will no longer be coming out and it will become uh, a secret prison again in the way that it was when it began. Well. Well, we're unfortunately running very short on time, Mozam. Uh, I want to re- once again remind our listeners that the book is Enemy Combatant, My Imprisonment in Guantanamo, Bagram, and Kandahar. We're going to look back on Guantanamo and this whole period of incarceration of uh, yourself and others as a, a dark, dark period in American history. We, we, I, I, uh, I can't imagine that uh, history will treat us kindly, nor will the rest of the world for what we're doing right now. So... Uh, um, I want to thank you. I could talk to you for a lot longer, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Mozambique, uh, thank you so much for being on Weekly Signals. Thank you for listening.
This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Kaspar.